This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Hereditary angioedema is a rare and potentially life-threatening genetic disease that causes sudden and prolonged swelling to various parts of the body. While there are therapies available today, they require either injection or infusions, carry inconvenient dosing regimens, and can cause undesirable side effects. Farverus is developing an oral therapy to treat HAE that it says could provide an effective and more convenient alternative to existing therapies. We spoke to Wim Suverens, Chief Community Engagement and Commercial Officer for Farverus, about hereditary angioedema, the company's efforts to develop a convenient oral alternative to existing therapies, and why it thinks it will be able to provide an effective alternative that is safe, tolerable, and convenient. Wim, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Danny. We're going to talk about the rare and life-threatening condition, hereditary angioedema, farvorous, and its efforts to bring a new treatment to the market for HAE. Perhaps we can start there. What is hereditary angioedema? Well, Danny, hereditary angioedema, like the word says itself, is a disease which is passed on from parents to their children, which so is hereditary. It's a very rare disease. There are about 1 in 20, 1 in 50,000 in the U.S., so about 60, 10,000 patients, depending on the number you use. Um, and what it leads to what manifests itself as unpredictable swelling attacks in different parts of the body. Uh, they can be very painful and sometimes even lethal. They are caused essentially by the absence or deficiency of a particular enzyme called C1 inhibitor esterase. I mean, you don't have that enzyme, it causes a downside um, cascade, uh, which ultimately leads to an overproduction of a protein called bradykinin. And when in tissue cells, you have too much bradykinin, it will connect to a receptor called the B2 receptor. And by doing that, it will send a signal to the cell that it should uptake fluids. And as a result of that, you get those swellings. They're very localized, they're very painful. Um, and there are different types of HAE. They have type 1, type 2 uh, HAE. The first type is when you don't have uh, or not enough uh, C1 inhibitor esterase. Type 2 is you do have some C1 inhibitor esterase, but it's not working uh, effectively. And then there's a very rare, which is um, pretty hard to describe, and people don't know exactly what it is, called normal uh, C1 uh, esterase inhibitor uh, HAE, where patients do have the enzyme, but still have the same type of attacks. How well understood 
is what would trigger an episode for a particular patient? Well, it's very hard to say. There's not really an answer to that. What we do know is that patients typically under stressful conditions have a, more, a higher chance of having attacks. So when you go to the dentist, when people graduate or have their wedding, that's the moments that patients typically tell us uh, that attacks occur. Uh, but in nature, they're unpredictable. So it's, it's very hard for a patient because they, it's kind of a sword of Damocles hanging over their head. It can happen anytime. Um, and in different parts of the body, it's not always in the same place. So it's a, a, pretty, um, a pretty hard condition to, to live with. And how disruptive and dangerous can these episodes be? Well, first of all, they can be extremely painful. Women tell you that if they have severe abdominal attacks, that they can be more painful than delivering a baby. So that gives you a sense of how painful it can be. Attacks that are in the extremities, the hand or the feet, they're typically less painful, less disturbing, but they obviously debilitate you. We can't, you can't walk or you can't handle tools, etc. And then there's actually, in very rare cases, situations where the disease can be lethal. And that's when the attacks happen in the laryngeal area. It's, it's very rare, probably one in a hundred attacks is a laryngeal attack, but still every year there are people passing away from suffocation because of laryngeal attacks. Now, on top of these kind of physical phenomena, there is a very significant social aspect to disease, the embarrassment. I'm walking around on a fair, I'm going to be hit by somebody in the, in the, in the street and I get an attack. How do I manage that? I'm with people. It's, it's, there's a lot of social burden, social embarrassment that goes with it. And that then leads in a lot of cases to anxiety and depression because of the unpredictability and impact it has. So one woman told us that for her, every single important moment in her life, she can associate with an attack, whether it was her graduation, a wedding, her first baby, every important moment that was there led to an attack because of stress, because of the emotion, but we don't really know exactly scientifically why these attacks are happening. I imagine that's compounded by the fact that someone with this condition would appear otherwise normal to anyone else and may not. So does, does a lack of appreciation for what a person with this condition might face compound that? It's, you're absolutely right. It, those people go from a total normal state to, if you see the pictures, completely deformed faces or hands or feet. Um, and so it's very difficult for them to really live their life in a normal fashion because this can happen at any time. And particularly given that it starts at a very young age, three to five-year-old toddlers are it's when the disease starts to occur. You can imagine when kids are playing and these attacks are happening, that's has a huge impact on them socially. So are there things patients can do to manage the anxiety of just the fear of having an attack? It, that's a very good question. It's, there are not really good remedies or not good guidance uh, for people like that. I think at the moment, there are basically two options that, that people living with HE have. Either they opt for a acute or an on-demand treatment of their attack. So they basically say, I'm going to live my life. And whenever an attack happens, I'm going to take a therapy, a treatment that treats the symptoms 
of the attack. Or alternatively, they say, you know what? I don't want to have attacks at all costs. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to opt for a preventative or prophylactic treatment. So these kind of the two treatment modalities that are available and that can mitigate the symptoms in either fashion. And how effective are these treatments? Well, current therapies do are effective, but they're not perfect. And not perfect because in the first instance, on the, in the acute setting, all the therapies that are out there are either IV intravenous or subcutaneous, sub-Q injections. The standard of care for these patients is a cataband. It's a B2 receptor antagonist. So basically what it does, it tries to displace, avoid that bradykinin can connect to the receptor. And by doing that, it mitigates the symptoms of an attack. The downside of a cataband is that it's, because of its injection, it's painful site, uh, injection site reactions. So patients are actually suffering each time they inject themselves with this drug. And as a result of that, you'll see that a lot of attacks go untreated because people living with HEE say, you know what, I think this is going to be a mild attack, which they have a very hard time to predict, but they think it so that I don't have to inject myself. So there's a clear need in that segment of the market, in the acute market for therapies that don't have this inconvenience of injections. On the prophylactic side, so the prevention side, their patients today, they really are forced to make a trade-off. On the one hand, probably the most uh, used product at this moment in most countries is called lanadelamab. It's a monoclonal antibody, but again, it's a sub-Q twice-weekly injection. The drug is pretty effective, but you have to inject yourself. On the flip side, you can opt for the first oral therapy in HEE, Barotrostat. The downside from Barotrostat, though, is that if you look at the clinical trials, it's significantly less effective than Tuxiro, lanadelamab, the, the sub-Q injection, and it comes with some side effects. So patients do have to make a choice. They have to make a trade-off. And in terms of long-term consequences, is, is the disease, obviously there can be attacks that can be life-threatening, but can people live a, a normal life expectancy with this condition? Yeah, the silver lining here is that indeed it's not a generative disease. So patients are not worsening over, life, over their lifetime, um, but it's something they have to live with from when it starts till the end of their days. And uh, what you typically see is that it starts to occur in, in toddlers, three to five year old, at a relatively low attack frequency. And then when puberty kicks in, you see the attack frequency go up quite significantly. And then for a long period of time, patients can have a lot of attacks. There are patients that have two, three attacks per week, uh, to give you an idea. And then when you get older, at the end of life, you see there is typically a slowing down the frequency of the attack. So, but you still have attacks over the whole course of your life. Farvers is developing PHA-121. This is an experimental small molecule therapy. How does it work? So PHA-121 goes directly after the culprit that causes the swellings in a person's body, which is bradykinin. And it's in that matter, it's the same, has the same mechanism of action as the standard of care in the acute setting, which I mentioned before, a cataband. So what it does is it will compete with bradykinin for the B2 receptor. And by doing that, it avoids either prevents an attack or it mitigates the symptom of attack. The beauty of one-to-one -one is 
that we're actually developing two distinct products with it. On the one hand, we have a product called BHVS416, which is intended for the acute market. It's a soft gel capsule, which is prepared for rapid absorption in the stomach after you swallow the pill. And so that's really used for treating attack. But at the same time, we're also developing an extended release tablet, PHVS719. And as the word says itself, it's a tablet you take once a day and the active drug in the tablet is released over the course of 24 hours, which means that over the whole day, you're protected against attacks. At least that's what we aspire to. That's what we want to demonstrate, obviously, in our clinical trials going forward. And is binding with the bradykinin receptor uh, an issue in terms of interfering with any normal uh, immune system process? As far as we know, not. Um, so at the moment, there is no evidence that this has any effect, um, a negative effect on other physiological processes in, in the human's body. Well, what is known about the safety and efficacy of the therapy from studies that have been done to date? Well, as a matter of fact, we don't really have yet clinical data. So at the moment, we are in two ongoing phase two studies. We have a phase two study for the acute setting called repeat one, and we have a phase two study for the preventative setting called chapter one. But at the moment, we don't have yet um, data from these studies. We expect by the end of the year in the acute setting to have our first data and in Q1 of 2023 data for our preventative therapy as well. You're going after a target that's currently used by an injectable therapy. How does having an oral alternative impact the the patient? Well, the impacts on patients can really not be underestimated. I mean, it's swapping bulky syringes and vials with these tiny capsules that we have or tablets, which are easy to carry, that avoid those pain, painful side in, uh, in reactions, patients love it. Whenever you talk to patients about this, they want an oral drug to treat their attack. So this is a massive benefit uh, for patients. And I think if you look at a very recent uptake of Barotrostat in the preventative setting, that is testimony to how willing patients are going to, are willing to go after an oral product in this setting. And as I mentioned to you before, because of the painful side injection reactions, 60, only 60 to 70% of attacks in the US are treated. So there's a huge opportunity for having earlier treatment for this patient. The sooner you treat, the less severe attacks will be, the easier it is to mitigate the symptoms. So I think an oral product in this setting can have a massive impact. Why are so few patients with the condition treated? Is it, is it difficult to diagnose? Well, as a matter of fact, I wouldn't say too few patients are treated. We have made a ton of progress in the last 10 years in diagnosing these patients. Uh, but it's still true that it takes sometimes a long time. Um, as I mentioned, the, tip, the disease typically starts in toddlers, three to five-year-olds. And what is the first type of attacks that these get? abdominal attacks. They have a belly ache. Well, a toddler with a belly ache, who is going to think this is HAE? So that's kind of a burden. That's a hurdle 
uh, for diagnosing these patients early. On top of that, which is interesting, is that people living with parents living with HAE, they're sometimes embarrassed. They, they feel guilty that their children might have disease as well. And there's kind of a bit of closing their eyes for those symptoms. And you would expect that if one of the parents has HAE, that you automatically would test your children for the defect. And they often don't. So that's why in reality, it still takes sometimes between three and five years before there's an effective diagnosis made uh, for people living with HAE. And what's the development path forward for you? Well, we, as I mentioned, we are currently in phase two, both in the acute and in the preventative setting. If these trials read out positively, then we will be initiating a phase three program, a normal development program. And the launch of our drug then will depend, obviously, on when we will complete the phase three program. And would you expect to convert patients who are on an injectable therapy today, or would you be focused on bringing in new patients? Do, do you find there's any resistance to a doctor switching a patient to an oral therapy if they feel their patient's well-controlled with an existing treatment? Yeah, this is, this is a very interesting question, Dan, because I don't know yet you followed um, the recent development in HAE with the launcher Baratralstat. And I think what Baratralstat really showed is that there's a huge, huge need for oral therapies in this space. Baratralstat, based on the pure clinical data, is less efficacious than standard of care lenalidomide. It comes with GI side effects. So why would you try this drug if you're well controlled on lenalidomide? And what we do see in the market is that there's a lot of needle fatigue. A lot of people that treat themselves for a long time with injections, seeing now an option there to have an oral therapy. And that's really speaking to this attractiveness of oral drugs. And so we hope that we can bring not only that oral aspect to the drug, but what we are aspiring to is to really bring something that covers the full spectrum of needs of people living with HE, meaning efficacy, they want a therapy that works, they want a therapy which is tolerable and safe, and they want a therapy that is convenient. And today, Whenever they take a therapy, they have to choose, they have to drop one of these elements. And our aspiration is really to bring something to the market that can cover those three bases. The company's pipeline is completely focused on HAE. Is there expectation that you're going to be looking at broader indications beyond that? Well, we do look um, internally uh, at some other indications driven by uh, the B2 receptor antagonist mechanism, uh, but we haven't disclosed yet uh, what these are, so I can't share that with you yet. Wim Suverens, Chief Community Engagement and Commercial Officer for Farverus. Wim, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me, Danny. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. 
You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.